just a quick point. Uh, last week I had mentioned that this week we were going to be having a baptismal service. Uh, we are not going to be having a baptismal service today uh, due to apostasy. And so we... It's not funny. Apostasy is not a funny thing. Um, actually, there is... Uh, those who are going to be baptized, they have some family who are not able to make it. So we're going to postpone it uh, for another time. So just in case you're wondering, uh, that will not be taking place today. But uh, if you are not an apostate and you would like to consider baptism, uh, you can talk to me and uh, I'll be happy to, to go over that with you. You're familiar with these words. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the text that we're going to be looking at in Isaiah today uh, is the passage where that prophecy that Matthew cites is taken from. So we're going to pay careful attention and try to determine how this functions uh, for the gospel. It's one of those famous quotes that we have, uh, the Christmas narrative, we're, we're well familiar with it. Every, every Christmas this gets trotted out. The Isaiah context is pretty different. And so what we need to do is we need to determine... How does the prophecy in Isaiah function properly in terms of fulfillment in Matthew? So it's actually a legitimate use of the text. So turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Lord willing, this morning we're going to consider verses, or chapter 7, 1 through 8, 18. It's a unit. Um, but I'm just going to begin by reading the first 17 verses of chapter 7. So Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, Verses 1 through 17. This is the word of God. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son share Jashub to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place, it will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand 
at all. Again, the Lord said to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Before we uh, consider this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, this there's there's a lot of things here uh, for us. There's a lot of things in your Word, some of which are difficult to understand, and yet we know that this is given to us given for us, for your glory and for our good. And so I ask that by your spirit you will open up this this book, unseal the words of this scroll to us, to our minds and to our hearts. Help us see, help us see your character and your plan. And also help us to see the profundity of your revelation even how you choose to disclose yourself to us. May that by itself be reason for us to praise. Help us to be amazed at you, the one true living God. And help us to be thankful uh, for Emmanuel, that you are with us. Even sometimes when it, it seems like you are not, even sometimes when your people struggle through difficult things. You are a God who is transcendent. You are a God who is imminent. You dwell with those who are broken. We thank you for that. And Lord, we ask that as you dwell amongst those who are broken, we also ask that you will heal them through the great physician, your son, who was born and given the name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins and was also given the name Emmanuel, for he was God with us. Guide us by your spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's somewhat easy to to get a little bit lost uh, in the names and the cities and all of the rest at the beginning of this chapter. Part of our problem, again, is just cultural context and distantiation in terms of historical sequence. So if the text said something like this, do not be afraid of Washington and Ottawa. For the head of Ottawa is only 
Pierre Elliott Trudeau's son, then you would have no problem sort of piecing that together. Right. Uh, you, you could add Canada, you could add Ottawa, you could add Parliament Hill, you could add all of those things, and every one of those references is just immediately apparent to you. It's all speaking about the same thing. That's what's going on here. What God is doing is he's using capital cities, rulers, and countries. And everyone knew exactly who was, what he was talking about. Okay. So, the main point here is that King Ahaz is worried that Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Ephraim is sort of a synecdoche. It's one of the terms that's used for the northern ten tribes who are also called Israel at this time in history. There's a break after Solomon. The kingdom splits. Judah is the southern kingdom. Israel becomes the name of the northern kingdom. This is a divided kingdom. Israel used to be united, now it's split. Jerusalem is in the south. Jerusalem is in Judah. So what you have through the history from after Solomon on is you have two kings, one reigning in Judah, one reigning in Israel. Ephraim is another term for Israel, the northern ten tribes. So what you have here is the king in Jerusalem, and you must not forget, the king in Jerusalem is the Davidic king in the Davidic line, reigning on David's throne in the city where there is the temple. The king of Judah, Ahaz, is worried because the north, the northern ten tribes, Israel, has now allied with their enemies, Aram. And they're going to come and attack Judah. So what the king Ahaz is thinking is, I'll appeal to Assyria, which is the superpower, I'll pay them tribute, and they'll come and they'll clean out these two enemies, and we'll be fine. That's his, that's his strategy. It's all sort of uh, real politic. It's all political alliances. In fact, one of the things you, you won't understand about Isaiah and most of the prophets, for that matter, is you want to understand that often in the prophets, what they're doing is they're looking at social disintegration in terms of social injustice inside of the nation, which is manifested partly in forsaking God and trusting in all kinds of political alliances. So they're forever making treaties with other nations, offering making offerings and sacrifices to their gods, that's part of the deal, adopting their religious customs, then breaking those treaties and making a treaty with someone else because you think you have a better shot being safe with that. So it's completely unprincipled in every possible way. And that's what's going on here. God sends the prophet to say, basically, look, why are you so afraid of these two rulers and these two little petty kingdoms. Can they overwhelm you? Yes. That's nothing to worry about. Because I'm God. They can't overwhelm me. Just trust me. Why would you trust these other people? So he says, this sort of pejorative language, do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. You know, they're just burnt down embers. There's nothing to worry about here. At all. Let them be angry. And yes, they've plotted your ruin. Now, that's something you probably don't want to hear. I don't know how many people are plotting your ruin. It's, it's not a positive thing. You know, they're plotting your ruin, but you don't need to worry about it. They're not in control. In verse 6, they're saying, we're going to tear down the king, and we're going to put a usurper. We're going to put one of our allies. We'll put the, king of, the son of Tabeel in his place. So there's a plot to overthrow Ahaz by these two other 
nations. But God says, it will not take place. It will not happen. In other words, no intrigue will be successful, even politically, unless I permit it. This is not going to take place. Then he lists off you know, the, the capital cities, the, the leaders, the nations. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. In other words, he's saying, and this is quite something. This is not, this is reassuring in a backhanded kind of way. He's saying, oh, guess what? Yes, 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 Ahaz. People are plotting to take your life. Don't worry about it. No, you can't overpower them. They will defeat you. You're fine. Trust me. If you don't stand in your faith, you will not stand at all. If you don't stand in faith, there will be no there will be no chance of success for you whatsoever. But if you just have faith, you'll be fine. Then God says, ask for a sign. I will confirm this to you. You're afraid. I will take that into account. Even though I don't have to, you should just trust me. But you obviously don't. So ask for a sign. And Ahaz with a sort of false piety. I will not ask for a sign. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, it's always interesting how people dialogue with God. God says, I want you to do this. I want you to ask. Ask me. And in piety, he says, oh, no, no, I won't do that. I won't test you. As if flat-out disobedience to what God has said is better than testing him. No, no, no. I, I'm too, I'm too good for that, God. I, I, I won't, I won't ask for a sign. And Isaiah said, "Here now, you house of David, is not enough to try the patience of humans. Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, here's the sign: the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and shall call him Emmanuel. That's the sign. The name Emmanuel, of course, means God with us." This is a sign for who? It's a sign for King Ahaz. The text is clear. A child born named Emmanuel, 700 odd years later, is not and cannot be the fulfillment of this sign. Cannot be. This is something which must be fulfilled in Ahaz's day to count as a sign for Ahaz at all. Now, not only that, but the text is explicit in the next verses. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before, this is why it's a sign to Ahaz, before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. In other words, the virgin, who is a virgin at that time, but will not be when she gives birth to this son. This is not this is not a miraculous conception. The maiden or the virgin at this time will give birth to the son in the future after sexual intercourse. That's implied. There's no miracle there. The sign isn't the miraculous conception. Before this child grows up, these two nations, Ephraim and Aram, the ones you're so worried about, they'll be laid waste. Ahaz, you'll see it. 
That's the promise. That's why Ahaz doesn't need to worry. Ahaz doesn't need to be afraid because God is going to destroy these two nations. And a child will be born. And before this child grows up, before this child can discern right from wrong, the nations will be destroyed. Ahaz, you will see it. That's the sign I'm giving you. The Lord will bring on you and on your people on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So this sign again is the king of Assyria is coming in. Assyria is going to destroy these two nations. Now this doesn't seem to have, this seems to have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus. So, so what's it doing sort of smuggled into our Christmas narrative? Well, certain liberal scholars will just say, well, obviously Matthew has no idea how to quote the Old Testament. He, he just, he just botched that one. You know, there's nothing to do with anything. You know, we, we come to Jesus and, and all of a sudden, how on earth does it have anything to do with Isaiah 7? Well, just hold on. Okay, just hold on. We'll get there. But you have to get to Matthew properly. That is, there are biblical categories which will allow you to work through this text and see it fulfilled in Jesus, but you can't go too quickly. You, you have to put it some blocks in place. So, just hold on to all of that. Verse 18. In that day, that is, after this child was born, in that day, the Lord will whistle for flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. He's bringing in the Assyrians. So this is now all metaphor for bringing in the Assyrians. In the day of Emmanuel, the Assyrians are coming in. This is long before Jesus. They will all come and settle in the steep ravines and the crevices in the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and at all the water holes. And that third day, the Lord will use a razor hired from beyond the Euphrates River, the king of Assyria, to shave your head in private parts and to cut off your beard also. That is, God is going to whistle like a beekeeper. Actually, in ancient times, you know, there were beekeepers who actually had certain calls and whistles. Uh, that they would use when they were working around uh, the swarm of bees, you know, for their protection also to try to move them a little bit. So God's like a beekeeper here. The Assyrians, this massive superpower, it, it, it's his little bee stand. And, and he just whistles and brings them over. He, he, he calls to them. They settle all over the place, flies and bees. And then the metaphor shifts. They're like a razor. They're like a razor used to shave off all the hair of the individual, which is, which is a disgrace culturally. So you're going to be surrounded by a swarm of bees. I'm calling for them, and you're going to be disgraced, shaved bare. In that day, a person will keep alive a young cow and two goats. And because of the abundance of the milk they give, there will be curds to eat. All who remain in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, in every place where there were a thousand vines with a thousand silver shekels, there will be only briars and thorns. Hunters will go there with bow and arrow, for the land will be covered with briars and thorns. As for all the hills once cultivated by the hoe, you will no longer go there for fear of the briars and thorns. They'll become places where cattle are turned loose and where sheep run. The imagery here is of a rich, fertile agricultural area, which is now basically a wasteland. Where you used to have you know, expensive vineyards, now you just have briars and thorns. Everyone's eating curds and honey. That is, they're eating simple, basic, poor food. You look around and all you see is a few animals running around. Everything's broken down. Everything's laid waste. That's what happens in the day of Emmanuel. 
chapter 8, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen, Mahar Hazvaz. That means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. So I called in Uriah the priest and Zachariah son of Jeberachiah as reliable witnesses for me. Then I made love to the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Mahar Shalahazbaz. But before the boy knows how to save my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Now this seems borderline positive for Judah. Ahaz was worried about Samaria. He was worried about uh, Ephraim and Israel. But now Assyria, God's calling for Assyria. Assyria's going to come in and destroy them. So that seems mildly positive. But then verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty flood waters of the Euphrates, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through and reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. The picture here is of the mighty Euphrates River flooding into the really minor river systems of Israel and Judah. And there's a massive flood. Now, depending on where you live in Canada, you may be familiar with flooding. Uh, Certainly uh, down in a lot of the states, uh, through some of the mountain ranges, you get get runoff in the spring or lots of rain, even through the summer. You, and, and creeks and rivers can rise dramatically, you know, sometimes dozens of feet. All the little rivers of, of Israel are, are not equipped for the roaring flood of the Euphrates. And so when the Euphrates, it's a metaphor for the army of Assyria, comes in, it's like a flood that totally sweeps up over the banks, washing away Ephraim and Aram. And Judah says that's great. Except the water rises so high, God says, it's like, Judah, it's going to come right up to your neck. Your head is just going to be above water. Assyria is going to surround Jerusalem the way water surrounds someone's neck. And we'll see later on in this book exactly when that occurs. When Assyria comes and besieges Jerusalem and the events that take place there with Hezekiah. But in order to get to Jerusalem, it should be relatively obvious that a lot of Judah is going to be destroyed. But as everything en route to the capital city is ruined by Assyria, everything's wiped away as in a flood except for Jerusalem itself, and it's almost washed away. And then you have this just, this, this just cry, and then in verse 8, its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land. You can almost, you can almost put an, like an O in there. Like, oh, Emmanuel. This is your land. The land you are growing up in. Destroyed by the Assyrians. All this danger, all this injury. Oh, Emmanuel. You're almost washed away. 
Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. For God is with us. This, of course, in Hebrew, is Emmanuel. Propose your plan, but it will not stand for Emmanuel. That's the reason. So what you have here is you have this continual coming back to Emmanuel. It's not merely, and if we, could, if, we, if we actually just read Isaiah, instead of just thinking we know Isaiah through Matthew at Christmas time, we'd actually recognize that, the Emmanuel, that Emmanuel is a whole theme that binds this section together. God is doing something here. God is giving a sign. God with us. The land in which God with us grows up is ruined and destroyed. Everything is going to be destroyed, and yet, if you have faith, you will stand. Why? Emmanuel. God is with us. Now hold on to all of that. This is what the Lord says to me with a strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. That is, you, 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 I say you're living in a rebellious place. Don't be like everyone else. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. It's Isaiah. Look at all the politicking. Look at all the fear. Look at all the alliances. Look at all the rebellion. Not everything that people call a conspiracy is a conspiracy. Now that, of course, means that some things are conspiracies, but not absolutely every single thing is. Don't be afraid of what people are afraid of. Don't dread it. But there is one strong contrast here. Don't fear what the people fear. But there is one you better fear. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. Isaiah 6. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Now what the prophet is doing, what the Lord is doing in revealing himself to the prophet, is he is He's bringing some things together. Isaiah 1, God is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 6, the burning ones, the fiery ones, the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is transcendent. He is unlike anyone else. He is categorically different. And yet, as you fear him, and fear here cannot merely be taken as 
we, we tend to talk about fear in the sense of reverent respect and awe. That's fine. That's probably the majority type nuance in the language in the Bible. So, so when we fear God, you know, it doesn't mean that we're terrified of him. It means that you know, we, we treat him with reverent awe. Yes, great, that's true. But you have a harder time with that concept when the word is dread. He is the one you are to dread. Oh, no, it doesn't mean it. Just, just, just reverence. No, it's dread. He is the one you are to fear. He's the one. As, as C.S. Lewis describes it. In Narnia. If any can stand before Aslan without their knees knocking together, they're either braver than most or foolish. You don't, you don't stand in the presence of God in a cavalier, flippant attitude. The Holy One is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And yet, and yet, why? Because as the text goes on, there's an awful lot of people who are ruined by this God. They stumble upon him, they fall upon him, they're broken to pieces by him. Dread that. Dread destruction. You're, you're a fool if you don't. I mean, that's, that's part of the, the, the sheer pragmatics of the Old and the New Testament. That, that, that there is, there is actual, real, genuine danger in this universe for us all. You ought to fear that. It's, the reason we're saved, the reason the language of salvation works is because we're saved out of a bad situation. We're saved out of danger. That's what salvation is. No, 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 God, God can break people. And yet, this God who is holy and transcendent, this one who deserves reverent awe, yes, and worship, yes, but also dread, he's also the one who's with you. you, you you've already knocked over the name Emmanuel a couple times before you get to this verse. God with us. Well, which God? This God. This, this thrice holy God, this transcending God, this God who is unlike anyone else, anything else, any other being, this God who is high and exalted, who is too pure to look upon sin, this God is with us, Emmanuel. Bind up this testimony of warning. Seal up God's instructions among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. In a context of global chaos, because this is their whole world, where a superpower is going to come in and militarily destroy you and ruin your agriculture and ruin your economy and almost destroy your capital city. I will wait for the Lord 
who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face. God, I look around and it doesn't seem like you're in control. God, I look at the earth and evil reigns. I look to heaven And it's like the sky is bronze. Where are you? You know, it's not hard to wait for the Lord when everything is going your way and you feel happy. And frankly, I, I don't, I want to be careful with this, but, but in, in my judgment, I'm going to get, I'm often wrong about things, but, but in my judgment, in, in Western evangelicalism, we have, we have, there are, we have, there, we're working with a few horrid confusions. One of which is the confusion of feelings of happiness with closeness to God. So I've been remotely the same thing. So if we've had a really good day and we're just happy and we we open our Bible, we do our devotions, brilliant. We pray, we praise, I'm just so close to God. We have a hard day. We pray, we're not happy. And somehow, it's our mood which determines how we evaluate our spirituality. Easy to say you're waiting on God when everything's going your way. Awful lot harder to wait on God when he's hiding his face. When you'd give anything for, for a touch from his spirit the way you remember If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Not mercifully. If you do not stand firm in a peppy emotional disposition, you will not stand at all. Or if you do not stand firm in your subjective feeling of happiness, you will not stand at all. If you do not stand firm in your faith, whether God is being merciful and his face is shining upon you and you feel it or his face is hidden from you. And it's like in Psalm 13, you're crying out, how long, O oh Lord, how long will you forget me forever? How long must I struggle with my thoughts? How long was I this sorrow day after day in my heart? Why do you hide your face from me? No matter where you are, cling to God. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Man. Easier said than done. 
Here am I. Remember that chapter 6. Who will go for us? Here am I. This hasn't changed. Here am I and the children of the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells in on Mount Zion. Here's Isaiah. Child Emmanuel. Malachal Hazbaz. Here are my children. These are signs. Swift to the plunder. Quick to, quick to the plunder. Swift to the spoil. And God with us. Destruction and God with us. A lot of times we we don't see those two things as compatible. But here are these two children, signs and symbols God has given me. All right, well, presumably these children who are signs and symbols then are signs and symbols of something in Isaiah's day. And they are. So then the question is, what hermeneutical rule allows you to move from that Isaiah 7 context to Jesus at Christmas time? Well, we are going to assume, courtesy, that Matthew is at least as likely to get quoted the Old Testament right as we are. And so we're going to work on that particular presupposition that Matthew likely hasn't botched this. But how? How does it work? If you have your Bibles, just turn quickly to Matthew. And we're going to take a, a very quick run through this. These are doubtless things that you already know, but uh, just, just a quick refresher. So Mary... Has the miraculous conception, verse 20. She gave birth to a son, you're given the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Part of the difficulty that we have is that we tend to conceptualize prophecy in a very narrow way. So we tend to conceptualize it in terms of straight verbal prediction. That's the sort of thing you get in Micah 5, 2, which thankfully is actually quoted for us in Matthew chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, when the, when the scribes answer about where the Messiah should be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they reply, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's straight verbal prediction. Bethlehem is the place where the Messiah will be born. Said it. You prophesied it, you predicted it, straight verbal prediction. So when the Messiah is born in Bethlehem, you go, oh, that's the fulfillment. Or you say, where's the Messiah to be born? You say, well, look, we have a straight verbal prediction. We've already been told this is where it's going to be. Part of our difficulty, if we're not familiar with the prophets, is we tend to think that most prophecy is like that. When actually, not very much of it is. Most prophecy works in different ways. So, Micah 5.2 is an example of straight verbal prediction. That is definitely prophecy, and it's good that we have it, but it is by no means the only way God prophesies and points forward to what he's going to do in the person of his son. Now, Matthew's gospel is obsessed with the theme of fulfillment. If you track through all the fulfillment language in Matthew, it is astounding. 
how often Matthew uses this theme of fulfill, fulfilled, and fulfillment. In the first couple chapters, what he's doing in a variety of different ways is he's showing how Jesus is sort of, by taking just little categories, by drawing from different categories, he's showing you how Jesus is categorically the fulfillment of the Old Testament story, the, the Old Testament narrative. Micah 5.2 is one of that. Even before, Isaiah 7.14. He will full, this is to fulfill. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. He will be born in Bethlehem. This is to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Then if you look at chapter 2, verse 15. They've gone to Egypt. Now they're being brought out of Egypt. So he, he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And you go, oh great, that's straight verbal prediction. God says, I will call my son Jesus out of Egypt. They go to Egypt. Herod dies. They come out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. Neat and tidy. There's your prediction. Except what throws a little bit of a wrench into that is that that's not at all what the prophet was saying. Not even a little bit. And when I say not even a little bit, I mean, like, not even a little bit. Not at all. You know this because Hosea 11.1, the prophet is looking back at Israel's history and how wretched Israel is in spite of all that God has done for them. Out of Egypt I called my son. Yet the more I called them, the more they went away from me. It's the next part. So unless you want to say that that this is talking about Jesus, the Messiah will be called out of Egypt, and the more God calls the Messiah, the more the Messiah will go away from him in rebellion and wickedness. Unless you want to say that, then, then you have to try to figure out what on earth is going on. How can Matthew use Hosea, which is talking about Israel, literally back in the days when they were in slavery in Egypt, being called out. Into rebellion, the whole point is that God's going to judge them because of their wickedness, which you can see century after century, all the way back to when they were called out of Egypt. So Micah 5, 2 fits. Isaiah 7 doesn't seem to. Hosea 11, not at all. Now, verse 18, verse 17. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Well, oh, that's straight verbal prediction that when the Messiah is born, children will be killed in Bethlehem. Not at all. This verse drops like a bombshell in the middle of the book of Consolation, Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33. You know, really get to the New Covenant. And it's all about how God is going to bless the people, bless the people, bless the people, bless the people. Except Rachel's going to mourn for her children. Why? Because they've gone into exile. They're taken away and they are no more. It's an exile tax fulfilled in the days of Jeremiah. It's not verbal prediction about the Messiah at all. Not even a little bit. And so now what you're doing is you're, is you're trying to figure this out as fast as you can because it just seems like Matthew doesn't quote the Old Testament very well. He's, he's sort of grabbing on to verbal similarity and then just throwing it at Jesus without any regard for context at all. Now, that would be true, inescapably so, if all prophecy function as straight verbal prediction. If that's how you define prophecy, then Matthew doesn't understand it. 
However, if you assume that Matthew does, and you're open to a biblical definition of prophecy, now you can start to make some moves forward. In other words, maybe we've blinkered ourselves with a too narrow definition, which then screens out biblical possibilities. Now, God also prophesies about Messiah in nonverbal ways, through patterns, through pictures, through events. We call this typology, uh, through institutions. So, for example, we are well, well familiar with. Um, it's been a, it's been quite some time since I've drawn any attention whatsoever uh, to this to our, our beautiful art panels here. But I'll do that this morning, just for a moment. You'll notice that the after the bite of the forbidden fruit, mercifully and accurately not depicted as an apple, you then have. Uh, a slain lamb with the the ribbon of blood running all the way through to the cross. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The day of atonement, that bull that, bull that had blood uh, sprinkled all around, those two goats of expiation and propitiation, that's Jesus. But no one ever said, oh, by the way, the goat is Jesus. Just so you know, this Passover lamb, it's going to be my son. There's no verbal prediction at all. It's a pattern. The whole sacrificial system is a prophetic pattern. When the lamb of God and his way the sin of the world shows up, you go, oh, I have all of this category of event which helps me understand what he did on the cross. All of this category event of atonement and death and substitution and blamelessness and all of the rest, it all pointed forward to this. And I would never have known that, frankly, until this happened. In this way, it's like the, it's like the game of memory. You, know, you, you, you turn over all these cards and you, you try to remember which ones were which so you can match them up. The key is when the Jesus card gets flipped over. And then you look back at all of those other cards and go, oh, that's how they work. That's how they function. It's like Jesus is that, is that, that, that centerpiece which holds everything together. You know, he, he, he's the melody that you didn't have in the sheet music. You had all these other notes and then you get this melody. Oh, that's how it works. King. David. A type of Jesus. Exodus, coming out of slavery into the promised land. Picture of Jesus and redemption. High priest. All those useless, sinful high priests who every year had offered sacrifice for their own sin and then died because they were because they couldn't do anything in terms of actual providing atonement. And then another high priest did the same thing. Then he died to get another high priest, another high priest. Year after year, century after century, all these, these futile sacrifices, all these futile priests, both sacrifice and priest, were prophecies. Oh, we need a full, we finally need a sacrifice which will atone. We finally need a high priest who's blameless. They were all prophetic. Israel itself as a nation is prophetic. When God calls Israel out of Egypt, he says, 
that they are his firstborn son. That's why the firstborns of the Egyptians are killed. Because the Egyptians were trying to kill God's firstborn. It was reciprocity. It was lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, if patterning is prophetic, and it is, then you approach Matthew, and the text works this way. Straight verbal prediction, born in Bethlehem, great. Israel's in Egypt, Israel's going to come out of Egypt. If God's firstborn comes up out of Egypt, then God's firstborn will come out of Egypt. It's a match. Book of Consolation. Oh, the new covenant, when the new covenant's inaugurated, the children of Israel under Roman oppression still see themselves as exile even in their own land because they're under the thumb of a foreign oppressor. Oh, if, if, if Rachel wept in her day for her children when, when the new covenant is promised, how much more when the new covenant is about to be inaugurated in the blood of the Lamb will there be weeping and mourning when these children are, when these covenant children are put to death by their oppressors? That's exile. Jesus is called out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I called my son. Firstborn Israel will go away into sin. Firstborn Jesus, the fulfillment of Israel won't. He's everything Israel was supposed to be. He's everything the priest was supposed to be. He's everything the tabernacle was supposed to be. He's everything the, the, the lamb was supposed to be. He's everything everything was supposed to be. So it's not just that he <coughs> recapitulates. He doesn't just do the same thing. He actually uh, brings it to fulfillment. Can I get that water there? <coughs> I'll, I'll help myself. Everyone relax. <coughs> Thank you. <clears throat> you, you just take a moment to think about that. <coughs> and then remind me what I was saying. I've, I've entirely lost my train of thought. No, he's everything that everything was supposed to be. So he is David, but without sin. He's Israel, but without rebellion. He's the high priest, but in perpetuity. He, he exists forever. He's without sin. He's not physically without spot. He's spiritually without spot. Emotionally without spot. Mentally without spot. Now, if Israel is called out of Egypt, then Jesus will be called out of Egypt. And when Israel is called out of Egypt, where do they go? They go through the Red Sea. Jesus comes out of Egypt, and, and where does he go? Matthew 3. He goes through the waters of baptism. When Israel comes out of the water, where do they end up? In the wilderness. When Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism, chapter 4 says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. How long is Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. How long is Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. In the climax of the wilderness experience is the revelation on Sinai, the mount. The climax of when Jesus is done his 40 days, Matthew structures the text that you immediately have what? The Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' Sinai. Jesus is Israel. And that's how these texts work. It's patterning, not straight verbal prediction. Now, if you come back to Isaiah 7, then, then what you have is this. 
if God gives a child into the world to represent the fact that he is with us, if a child is born as a sign, Emmanuel, God with us, if a child is born to this woman who is a virgin now, who won't be when she gives birth, when she conceives, how much more? When the one who conceives is literally a virgin. And it's miraculous through the Spirit of God. And the child is therefore the the very Son of God. In fact, the second person in the Trinity. God himself. In human flesh, God the Son incarnate. You, you, You can't have Emmanuel more than that. It, it, it's, it's literally impossible to have God with us more than God who is us. And if Emmanuel in Isaiah's day was a sign that God is with us, how much more is Jesus a sign that God is with us? What more do you need? I will not ask. I will not put the Lord my God to the test. He's given you a sign. He's given you Jesus. What other proof do you want? Well, what else do you need to see that he is here, that he is with you? This high and holy God in the manger. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. Isaiah 7 could point towards everything that it was. He is greater and better and more, not less than what was going on in Isaiah 7. It's fulfilled in Isaiah's day. But it is perfectly filled up, that is fulfilled in significance with the birth of Jesus. And that's how the text works. And it takes a little while to get there. But God built all of this together. God envisioned all of this history. God put all of this together just so it all crystallized and culminate in the person of his son, Jesus. Isaiah really is the gospel in the Old Testament. Showing us the Lord. Showing us Christ. He is God with us. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in a closing song.